really, really, really excited about this one because uh, it, I think we're going to cover a lot of ground on stuff that I have no idea how certain things work and, and how people get involved in certain jobs within photography like yours. But let's start off with your personal history of photography. So, how, you know, what was it that made you pick up a camera for the first time? Sure. Yeah. So I would say my journey through photography started in high school. Um, which I'm not sure what that is equivalent to, to you guys over there, but, uh, started in high school back in the, maybe around 2000, uh, in the dark room, developing my own film, uh, printing in the dark room, all of that stuff. Um, I mean, it was still the early days of digital. Almost nobody had digital back then. Um, after high school, I, was not very excited about going to college yet. So I decided to join the Marine Corps. So I joined the Marine Corps as a combat photographer. Wow. While in the Marines, I uh, was deployed to Iraq twice as a photographer. Um, first time was in 2005 and 2006. Second time was all of 2007. And I spent a significant, significant amount of time embedded with the infantry. Um, after college, or sorry, after the military, I decided to go to college because I wasn't ready to put down the camera. And unfortunately, in the military, as you go up in rank, you get put behind the desk more. And, you know, I was in my early 20s and I was felt like I was just starting to get a grasp of photography. So I wasn't ready to give it up yet. So I decided to go to college. I went to the Corcoran College of Art and Design, which is in Washington, D.C. Uh, it's no longer a standalone college. It's now part of George Washington University. And so I got my degree in photojournalism there and graduated from college in 2012. Well, if it's okay with you, I'd love to stick with uh, photographing in Iraq for a second. Sure. Most of this conversation is just going to blow my mind in the sense of the, the some of the things that you've done. But in terms of what your brief is as a, a photographer for the Marine Corps, you know what what is your sort of job description? What's your expectations from your superiors? So, as a photographer in the Marine Corps, we kind of had to be uh, at least starting off kind of a jack of all trades in photography because we had to do everything from. Uh, portraits in a studio to re-enlistment ceremonies to new style projects to even uh, uh, some like mission-oriented objectives. For example, like if we were in a combat zone in Iraq and we started taking fire from a mosque, my job was to get footage or photos that proved that they were shooting at us from a mosque because we were not allowed to set foot in a mosque unless they um, used it to attack us. And so I had things like that. Right. I mean, and, and even crime scene photography, I had to do a little bit of that, um, but less so when deployed and just general historical documentation. That's just crazy. I mean, I can't imagine photographing under those con conditions. One of the things I noticed with the images of yours that I have seen from Iraq is that, like you mentioned, there are some during conflict, but the ones that are really, really powerful, in my opinion, are the shots that seem to be taken immediately afterwards or in between assignments with the Marines that just seem to be flat out tired, sleeping or, or you know, completely exhausted, leaning on their rifle or anything like that. They seem to be the really pointy ones to me. Is, is there any particular points 
streets that were easier to photograph than others? I mean, obviously, I suppose when you're getting shot at, but how was it photographing there? Uh, I mean, it was interesting. It was a, a military combat unit. A squad is probably the closest knit group of men and women that you're ever going to find anywhere. And it was, I didn't get to embed with a single unit. I had to hop around to different units. And so I had to get these guys comfortable around me to uh, be able to relax around me. Even though my only job and role really was to take pictures, I, I still had a rifle. I had a rifle on one shoulder and a camera on the other. But when it came to like day-to-day operations and things, my job was just to take pictures. So I could have just done that. But there were often times where I would put down the camera and start doing the grunt work with, with the guys and fill sandbags or clear a house or drive a vehicle. Uh, and it really kind of showed that I was there with them rather than just a tag along. Um, and that was probably the most difficult thing. And that really paid off dividends because it it's easier for me now to make people comfortable around me in a situation right. or I've learned how to kind of just really be a fly on the wall. Did you face like a lot of immediate um, pushback when you first started photographing out in Iraq from, from your fellow Marines? No, not really. Uh, I, I mean, one thing about the military is they can't like, if they're my mission, my objective is to take pictures and they can't keep me from doing that unless it is like getting in the way of them performing their objectives or putting somebody at risk. Now they can't tell me not to take a picture of them, but they could ask me or they could also, you know, right. do things that would make the pictures unusable, like flip me off or wear a piece of their equipment incorrectly because they had military had silly rules where we couldn't send out pictures where people were like wearing their body armor wrong or something. Um, or they would just be like, they would make a face or something like that. You know, it's like, or they would obviously pose and that's not what I look for in a picture. And, um, so I wouldn't end up not using those, but, uh, back then it was the early days of social media. Uh, so I think everybody was on MySpace back then. Um, and what I would do is I, I had a Panasonic Toughbook laptop and a digital camera. I had an early Canon 10D the first time. And then the second time I had the, the, the original 5D, um, at which, which even then the 5D was like when we first got it, it was such an amazing camera. But I look at it now and it's like our iPhones are better than that. <laughs> you couldn't push it past... 800 ISO at all. Uh, but yeah, I would give them pictures. I, I would give them pictures to send home to families or girlfriends or wives and uh, put on their social media. And they, they eventually saw that, you know, I was treating them with respect and I was there to document everything. And that's, that's one of the things I like to do because in our entertainment and media world. Now it's always go, 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 go. Everything they portray is fast, fast, fast. It's always action, always action. But in reality, you know, and this happens, applies to everything, you know, protests, combat, politics, a wedding. There are 
there's the apparent clear stuff that you have to get mm-hmm. that everybody thinks about when they think about those kind of pictures. But then the stuff that is really powerful are the quiet moments in between. Um, you know, in combat, it could be the guys catching a snooze in 125 degree uh, weather, which I think is like 40 degrees Celsius for you guys or something like that. It's not fun. I can tell you that as an Englishman, I wouldn't fancy that here <laughs> yeah. at all. No. I, I, I'm definitely of English heritage because I do not deal with heat very well at all. <laughs> but or, or at a wedding, you know, the quiet moment between a bride and her bridesmaid or her mother that, you know, it's not the ceremony, it's not the portrait, but it's this really kind, quiet, loving moment that is easily overlooked. But when you see it in a picture later on, you're like, oh, wow. Okay. One thing you do have over any other guest I've had previously on the podcast or anyone I've ever met in my entire life is that you've actually taken photos through night vision. Uh, describe that process. <laughs> uh, so ba- this was, I think the last time I did that was in 2007. So 13 years ago, the technology was not that great. It, it, and I don't even know what it's like now. I, I haven't touched any of that gear or looked into it. But we had a like a kind of a... Um, a cradle that you would take the night vision scope that you would normally wear on a helmet and pop down in front of your face. And you would put it in this cradle that essentially turned it into almost like it would go between the lens and the camera body, just like a a teleconverter or an extender would. And you couldn't change the aperture at all. Like it was, it was kind of just, you put it in, you hope it exposed correctly. You could chimp on the back screen, but that was about it. Oh, and the autofocus wouldn't work. And it was extremely <laughs> difficult to focus. So there was a lot of times where I would take a string of pictures where I was literally just changing the focus, hoping one of them would just be in focus. <laughs> That's that's just insane, especially considering all of the other conditions that you're obviously dealing with at the same time. Yeah. From from there, you mentioned going into photojournalism. Why specifically photojournalism? It's history, you know. Um, right. It, it's you can make a difference. Um, I went to. I was a student at the Eddie Adams Workshop, uh, which is a major workshop for photojournalists. Um, it was started by Eddie Adams, the photographer from Vietnam who took the picture of the, the prisoner getting shot in the head, um, with the pistol. Mm -hmm. And in the early nineties, I think 1990 or 89 or something like that, he started a workshop because he wanted to pass on his knowledge. And so what he did, he's gathered all these editors and photographers and invited hundred students, um, to the workshop and it would be 50 students and 50 working professionals with less than three years of experience. And it'd be a three or four day crash course. Um, but you had to apply to get in there. Uh, and you only, you had to write a paragraph on why. And I remember one of the things I said was when I was in Iraq as a photographer, I at one point I realized that I could affect the war more when I picked up my camera than when I picked up my rifle. Wow. And that's, that's why I went into journalism. Um, 
journalists are empathetic people. We, we shoot the, the things we photograph because we care about them. Uh, if you look at some of the best photo essays throughout the past hundred years, there are not good things. There are disease, economic hardship, war, and we photograph these things because we want to show people what is going on, bring it up to, bring it to the forefront. Um, and, you know, there's the saying of a, a photograph is worth a thousand words. Uh, I, I add on to that. It's worth a thousand words in a thousand languages because a, a good photograph does not need to be translated. It, it's, it's emotion. Right. And no matter what language you speak, you can read somebody else's emotion and interpret a picture. Uh, and so that's why I got into photojournalism. There's one, there's one image that really stood out to me. Um, of yours in particular, because I think it shows um, from a photographer's point of view, I think it's impossible once you've, once you've taken pictures with any degree of seriousness, you've, you can't really look at other people's images about analyzing them um, or thinking about the circumstance. And there's an image mm -hmm. of yours with a, a US airman being sort of half covered with a Turkish flag yeah. as I think it's the, the Turkish MOD arrives at the Pentagon. Yeah. And I just thought that the, the anticipation and to capture the moment in the way that you did, is it something, is it something that you sort of lied in wait for, or is it just you're sort of constantly aware that something's going to happen? So you're just, you're constantly like darting your eyes around in anticipation for anything. Yeah, it's both. It's, it really is both. I will, even in the moments where I'm not taking a picture at an event, I'm always looking around. I'm trying to see what's happening. I'm, is something quiet happening over there? Is there a group of people huddled, talking, whispering, and looking someplace else? They might do something over there, so I need to be ready. Um, or, you know, the, the flag, I saw how it was draping over in front of the airman's face, and the wind was blowing it a little bit. and and when I first saw it, it wasn't just right. So I just waited for it to get a little bit more of a breeze to get pushed a little bit further over or out of his face. And it, it I just kept trying the picture. Um, a lot of it comes from, you know, the decisive looking for the decisive moment, um, being able, teaching yourself to kind of look into the future a little bit, or at least Mm -hmm. somewhat predict what's going to happen because if you see something happen, you didn't get a picture of it. Um, I, right. I saw that right. a photographer said that in the museum, which uh, is unfortunately closed. He was talking about, um, it was a wildlife photographer and he was in this really tall grass and trying to photograph some tigers. And then one like creeped out of the grass, maybe 10 feet in front of them. And and he was looking through the viewfinder and he thought the right thing happened, like the moment he wanted to capture, but he didn't see it because the shutter was closing. And right. so he said, you know, you got to keep taking a lot of pictures and you have to be almost doing the act of taking the picture before something happens to be able to catch it. So that's I kind of taught, tried to teach myself to do that, to attempt to see the future a little bit or see if something plays out. And then how would you, uh, you know, one thing I try and avoid doing with the podcast is sort of framing what it is that people do 
So currently you're a freelance photojournalist and it seems that you spend quite a lot of your time in and around uh, the White House, I would assume. Correct. Yeah, I'm freelance and uh, my probably the thing I photograph most now is the White House and politics and Congress. And obviously, I, I can't imagine a fair while, maybe not since Nixon, has there been more of a, a sort of constant need for updates from, from the White House in quite the same way. One thing I did want to ask you, which I think is kind of, uh, maybe it's just my skewed way of thinking about things, but are you ever slightly, uh, I don't want to say disappointed, but are you ever slightly sad at the sheer number of cameras that are privy to the same thing that you're photographing? Do you ever wish it was just yourself that were capturing these moments? Oh, of course. Of course, everybody, every photographer wishes that because you want to be able to catch a candid moment. Candid moments will always be better in a picture than any staged or posed photograph. And when you have a wall of cameras pointing at somebody, you're not going to get a candid moment out of them. But when you're one person by yourself, it's really easy to melt into the background or I will go into a situation often if, and if I'm like the only one taking pictures, I don't take pictures right away. I I don't walk into a room and immediately go start firing off the motor drive. I will stand there, let get, let people get used to my presence. And then they kind of start to lose interest in me. And then they will go back to doing what they were doing. And then I'll start taking pictures. And you can't do that when it's a wall of photographers. Um, but on the other hand, it's very challenging. And it really forces you to be creative and to get something different when, I mean, here in, here in Washington, I'll be at a hearing or an event at the White House, and I'm standing shoulder to shoulder with some of the best photographers currently shooting right now. And we are all shooting the exact same subject and the exact same room with zero control over the lighting or positioning or anything like that. And we're often corralled in a very small area and can't walk around the room. But we, if you look at, I mean, we've all seen these pictures of like the hearings of, um, of, you know, like Brett Kavanaugh, the Supreme Court justice and, and, and where they start off the hearing and there's 50 photographers in front of them, in front of the table. If you look at that, those pictures, you're going to get 50 different pictures, even though they're all photographing the same thing. Right. And so that's, that's a good thing that comes out of it. When it comes to that though, with the, with the artistic license that you have as a, as a photojournalist, is that kind of you, I mean, I, I don't really know any other photographer and I'm sure that there, there are and I'm just ignorant, but your work, you seem to really pick out unusual, interesting crops with quite a lot of narrative from what I think a lot of people would just take a very obvious sort of wider shot. You seem to pick out small details. Is that that artistic license where you're trying to stand out? Sometimes, yeah. Uh, I mean, when I'm at these hearings, we're there for, for hearing on the Hill at Congress those are often not time limited, but you are limited to where you can go. And you always want to like it, especially when you're freelance, you want to ensure that you at least get something for your client, whoever you're working for that they can use. And, and it's not going to be creative, but it's just a plain boring headshot of somebody talking, nothing special about it. And that's the shot that everybody may think about first when they walk into that situation. And we get those and we send those off quickly. But then 
we know that they need more. They need something else. They need something that is more visually appealing or uh, draws somebody's eye in or brings focus onto a little detail about the subject that could be a little line in a, in an article, but when you see it close up in a picture, it really kind of pops out. Um, and so I always kind of look for those little things. Um, that's one of the things that you can really kind of set yourself apart on as well. Uh, it, if you are good at spotting little narrative details that others aren't able to see, then it gives yourself a leg, a little bit of a leg up. I mean, you talked there about kind of covering briefs in terms of your clients, you know, how specific are the briefs that you're receiving? And obviously if you're freelance, do you, do you shop around for different briefs to see what suits? I'm completely ignorant on the process for this. No, that's fine. It's, um, most of the time, like the vast majority of the time, I will get a call ahead of time and get paid a day rate to go and photograph for a client for the day. Um, so if right. I'm shooting for Getty images on the hill, uh, they'll ask me this sometimes the day before, sometimes they've asked me like an hour before the event happens. Uh, and, but if it's like the day before, the night before I will get an email for all the, that's is the schedule for all the photographers in the area on who's covering what, and it'll often be different hearings. But once you kind of get to the level where I'm at, the clients don't give you a shot list. They, they are expecting you to get everything. Right. But then also if you go in with a shot list, then you're kind of a little, you can sometimes be a little too focused on getting those shots rather than getting a feel for the event that's happening in front of you. Um, occasionally I will have a story or a little project that I'll do on my own that I'll pitch. Um, that recently I had a little series on, um, a beach town, a resort town, uh, near only a couple hours away from Washington. And, it was the start of, you know, what was normally the tourist season, but everybody, everything was locked down because of the pandemic. And I thought that was really interesting. And so I went to this resort town, got an Airbnb for like three days on my own, just started taking pictures. And it was really fun because I got to kind of flex some creative muscles that I haven't been able to flex doing hard news. Um, but then afterwards, I kind of put together a body of images from that project and I would email my contacts and say, hey, is this something you're interested in? And eventually, I mean, I got a lot of no's, but then eventually one person said yes. And so that, and then I sold that little project. And you also got to remember though, when you're shooting projects like that, you're almost not gonna, you're not gonna get your money back for the most part you're not going to make a big profit. You're not right. selling them for $5,000. Uh, I mean, I think I had spent, or I think I got seven fifty for that project. It took me four days to shoot it. And it's cost me $550 to in expenses. So out of right. those four days, 
when you sub- subtract my expenses, I made 200 bucks. So, I mean, you, we don't do this for the money. You don't do journalism for the money. And <laughs> <laughs> um, so we have, obviously, I think British tabloid journalism is a beast unto itself. And, and I think in the last maybe six years, um, American sort of TV news and the 24 hour news cycle and so on has kind of taken the the British mantle and run with it in, in a sense of its kind of notoriety in the world for being such a, such a big entity. Do you find that like the press itself can be a subject for your photos? Because obviously with the current president, he interacts a great deal with specific members of the media. So is photographing members of the press something that you ever consider doing in, in the sort of in the motion of doing everything else that you're doing? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's again, doing, um, doing kind of taking a step back. I am always trying to kind of improve and learn and grow. And so like, yeah, I'll, I'll even go and take courses sometimes. And uh, a couple of years ago, I took a course on rock climbing photography with rock and ice magazine. And so I went out to Bishop, California for three or four days workshop photographing professional rock climbers. And I was the more experienced, the most experienced person there. And everybody was good just at different points of their career stages of learning. And one of the, one of the other students kind of like a third or two thirds of the way through, he's like, I was kind of watching you, how you're shooting. When you, when we would go up to a big boulder and start to shoot, you kind of wouldn't go in right away. You would kind of, you'd do a circle around the boulder and get a view of all the different angles and then think about it and then go in for the picture. And so I do that with news as well. If I can, I will get the standard headshots. Uh, I have somebody speaking at a podium or speaking in front of the cameras, and then I'll take a step back and see what it looks like from the back, see what it looks like from the side. If I can get higher up, I'll go higher up. Uh, you know, is there something I can catch a reflection off of or, or what? And We've all seen those pictures of a con- uh, from conflicts where we've all, we see these pictures of you know uh, somebody throwing a Molotov or a brick, and we're like, oh, that's a really amazing picture. But then somebody took a picture that was pulled back, where maybe ten feet back, and then you see there was a wall of like. 10 photographers that all crouched down to see that, to get that one picture. And then it kind of makes you think like, right. huh, was this person just doing it for the camera? Were they performing? Yeah. You know, I mean, most people don't set it up. I know. And around the world, there's different ethics when the, when it comes to that um, American photojournalism tends to be extremely strict when it comes to manipulation of images be and that be that before you take the picture and after you take the picture like we don't say hey can you do that again or wait 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 let me change my lens before you do that well i do remember i actually i do remember a few years back i think going back quite a way there was a photographer that was completely thrown out of the sort of press circuit because he had taken two images um i think it was of there was uh, some civilians, I might have been Iraq or Afghanistan, yeah. and a soldier. And he had taken the image of a soldier who looked like he was being aggressive, but he wasn't, and added that to a picture of a worried looking 
a group of civilians to make it look like the soldier was imposing himself yep. and he got caught doing that. And I, I remember reading about how he was sort of apologizing and saying it was like the only time it had ever happened. And whenever something like that happens, you've got to think it's not the only time. You don't get caught the first time you do something. And that's the thing. If you, if you get caught doing that, it throws into question your entire catalog, your entire portfolio. There was the photographer, Paolo Pellegrin. Uh, he's still around, but he's, he's with Magnum. And back when I was in college, uh, he had, or Magnum had sent a bunch of photographers to RIT, Rochester, um, to do some photo projects. And they would bring on some students as assistants. And Halo Pellegrin created a photo essay that ended up placing in world press called the Crescent. And he photographed what he called a neighborhood in Rochester that was high crime and made it look dark and dangerous and moody. And I'm looking through it and I go, oh shit, I know that guy. There's a guy in the picture that he has, and it looks like he's in a basement with very little light and a light shining on him, but he's got a shotgun in his hand and he's looking off to the side and he's got like shotgun shells strung across his chest. And, and he made it, it looks like this dark and, you know, dungeon guy that's armed to the teeth. And nope, it was a guy that was in my combat camera unit with me in the Marines. And he was another student at uh, RIT. And what Pellegrin had done is he um, asked his his assistant, who's a student, if he knew anybody that was like a firearm aficionado. And he said, yeah, I've got this friend here and let's give him a call. And then he convinced my friend to go to the, take him to the firing range. And he did it in a way of convincing him to go when he wouldn't have gone otherwise, right. which is not what you do. You don't do that. If, if you want to photograph somebody at the firing range, you say, hey, when is the next time you're going to the firing range? Oh, a couple of weeks from now? Can I go with you? Sure. Okay, cool. Right. You show up for that. Now, he created the situation. And then there was another photograph from the same series. It wasn't in the series that placed in world press, but it was on uh, Magnum's um, archive website for purchase, where it was a picture of a guy, a white guy with his shirt off. He had a ton of tattoos and he was holding a pistol in front of his chest and he had his, he was wearing a ball cap and he had his head tilted down. So the brim of the ball cap was covering his face and he looked like a gangster, you know, a thug that was going to go rob somebody or do something illegal. And the caption said, Brett with his gun. And, and I realized, wait, is that the same Brett that is the student? Yep, it was. It was, he had asked his assistant to pose with somebody else's pistol. Jesus Christ. And he didn't, it, now, if he had called it a portrait, fine. That's you can get away with that. That's right. that's different. But he did not call it a portrait. It was staged, and not only was it staged, he spelled his assistant's name wrong. So, wow. <laughs> so we don't do that kind of stuff. Um, and I forgot what the original question was. No, that's. I mean, that's fascinating. One, it does lead me on to one thing I'd love to ask you, which is 
obviously I'm talking from an entire continent away. There's obviously a lot of water between us and America and, and uh, it's, it's always difficult to see things from the outside and get the proper perspective. But from the time I've spent in America, I was actually in Washington uh, during the impeachment um, trial and um, I've, I've, was in New York in January. I was in Nevada last November. I've been to America about nine or 10 times in the time that, that Trump's been in office. And I think obviously his presidency has created this in, increasing polarity, especially when it comes to news stations. It seems to be you're either very hard in one direction or the other. Is there, and I, I apologize if this comes across as a loaded question, I promise you it's not, no. um, but just curious from the outside, is there like a financial incentive at all for um, photographers or for journalists in general that you know of to sort of to shoot scenes in a certain way with a certain narrative in mind are you you know are you ever given briefs that are you know we need pictures that make this person look a certain way i've never gotten a request like that from a client i've shot for as a freelancer uh now, I, for a few years after college, I was a staff photographer for a Turkish news agency uh, in their Washington bureau. And they have some different ethics in how, in how they do the news. And a couple editors did ask me to, you know, get some pictures of people holding different flags from different groups in the standing next to each other to make it look like they were working together. And I was like... You know, if it happens in front of me, yeah, I'll get that picture, but I'm not going to go ask people to pose for it. Right. Yeah. It's just something that obviously being surrounded by the British media and we've had really bad situations in the past where stuff has been intentionally incredibly misleading in the way that it's been done. And, and because of we had like the phone tapping like controversies over here and it was kind of proven how much people were willing to go to make something look like something it wasn't. It's just, I think there's like a distrust in a lot of cases, especially for mainstream media or all of the alternative names that it's been given by various political uh, people over the years. Um, I just, I've, I'm, all, I'm just so fascinated by how these kind of things come together. Have you ever been surprised by like editors' choices when it comes to the images that they pick from what you've taken? Oh, absolutely. Um, but back to your the last question on it, and then I'll answer that one. Sure. In the U.S., like everybody refers to journalists now as the media, um, but for me, and you know, what a, what I think a lot of people need to remember that there is a difference between media and journalism. Um, a lot of media, right. like the twenty four hour news network, CNN, Fox, MSNBC they're there to drive viewership and to get advertisers and to make money. Journalism is different. And you don't, we, most of the time, if you're freelance, you get paid a day, a flat day rate. Uh, almost gone are the days where you go out to shoot an event on your own and then try to sell pictures individually after that. And then you get a cut of the sale after that. No, that doesn't happen anymore. It's very rare for that to happen unless you have an extremely unique picture. Um, like, I mean, my picture from Charlottesville of the guys yelling with the tiki torches that went everywhere. I made, right. I made nothing more than my salary at the time because I was staff at the time. And then I recently had the picture of Trump with the light behind his head that went a right, ton right, right. of places. I made nothing more than the day rate that I got. So we don't really kind of go out there trying to manipulate things to make more money. 
it's just because it that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, what was the next question you had? It was about the being surprised by editors' choices. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I work for a client, I often like ninety nine percent of the time don't send them every picture I take. Uh, they trust me to edit things down and send what I think are the 20 best shots or something like that, for example, you know, 10 to 30, depending on what the event is. Right. And one thing I learned early on was if you're not crazy about a picture, don't put it in that set because most likely the editor's going to pick that picture. So you kind of want to guide <laughs> the editor's hands a little bit and, and, <laughs> and, and be like, I'm not going to tell you exactly which one to use, but I'm going to limit your selection. So you're going to have to pick something that I like. But on the other hand, photographers are their own worst editors. When it comes to editing our own work and calling everything down, it's we're horrible at it because in our minds, we will attach a lot of extra emotion to that picture. Um, Emotion from what were we feeling at the time? Did we wait for three hours hanging from a tree for, to get this one picture? Did we get pepper sprayed <laughs> immediately after taking this picture? So it has to be good. You know, it, it, that doesn't get attached to the picture. That doesn't get embedded in the metadata. Nobody cares about that. The only thing people care about is, right. is it a good picture? Now, sometimes there are certain elements that can be off. If there is another aspect of the picture, usually if the moment or the emotion in the picture is so powerful or so strong that it doesn't care, it doesn't matter. Um, like another picture I had from the Black Lives Matter protests outside of the White House, uh, the cops were charging directly at me uh, with a fire burning in the background. And like as, I, as they charged forward unannounced, I watched this guy charged towards one protester, turn his head, look at me and then change direction and just run straight at me with his round shield. And, and I'm like, Oh, okay, I'm going. <laughs> and, and so I start to turn <laughs> and move away quickly, but at the same time, I'm pointing my camera behind me shooting the pictures. Uh, and I'm just, I'm, it's a pure spray and pay, pray moment. I, I knew I had it at a wide uh, zoom. So that was pretty good. And I was hoping that it would be in focus. Um, but the picture is actually focused on the two officers behind him. So he, the front officer charging at me is a little out of focus. If that wasn't such a strong moment of the eye contact, like he's looking directly in the lens and charging, st- charging straight at me. If that wasn't so strong, you know, that picture wouldn't be, uh, usable because there, we wouldn't use it because it was, it's out of focus, but sometimes that doesn't matter. Well, that's like the perfect example when it comes to photographers that get kind of too caught up. And obviously I'm talking about way beneath where, where you are, but there are a lot of photographers that get so caught up in terms of like technical information, in terms of like sharpness and 
corner sharpness and stupid stuff like this that it, they think makes up a good photo. But in actual fact, like you've just said, you can have an image that doesn't quite have exactly technically what you'd want from it. But because the moment's so important, it carries the narrative so well, it, it works as, as the photo. And it might not be exactly what you'd have gone for, but it still is a great photo. Yeah, it's that does apply. That is a significant thing in some realms of photography, like when it comes to uh, product photography or commercial work. Yeah, you want as technically per a perfect image as possible because that's what the clients are looking for and that's what they need. So that's what you got to look for. But in a lot of other aspects of photography, be it journalism, weddings, events, the technical details of the photograph really don't matter. The only way that they matter is they do they allow you to, to take a usable picture. Other than that, what matters is the moment and the subject of the picture, not what you took the picture with. Now, I'm recently upgrading to the R5s from the 5D Mark IVs. And, you know, the Mark IVs have treated me extremely well. But when it, I'm shooting with, next to everybody else that's shooting with the Sony Alpha 9s and, and, and all of those stuff with the insane eye tracking focus. And, and I do see mm -hmm. that I am missing some shots. And, but the files that come out of the 5Ds are perfectly fine for me. They're, they're, if not better than fine, they're, they're great. But I'm upgrading and spending more for these, these things only because I need to ensure for my clients that I can go into any situation and get them a picture. You mentioned this a little while ago, and I don't want to kind of retread old ground too much um, and bore you, but there's an image of yours, which is to me, it, it's got kind of a weird meaning to me, but it's, I just think it's such a fantastic observation that you had, which was, I believe you called it exactly what I said out loud when I saw the picture and then read your caption and saw the same thing, which is the sort of Alfred Hitchcock image of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm with the uh, reflection in the window. The first thing I said when I saw it was like, oh, it's like Hitchcock's making a cameo. And then I read your, your description of it. And I was like, okay, so at least I'm not just the only one seeing it that way. You're around a lot of photographers and obviously there are photographers everywhere now. Everybody's a photographer these days. Do you think that the sort of the, the worst habit of photographers is not seeing what it is that they're photographing? They're, they're so focused on just being the first one to get the picture or to get the most pictures um, or, or whatever, that they're not seeing the scene before they're photographing it. Yeah, at a certain level, I think that can be a problem. Um, but when you get into the, the higher levels or echelons, you know, those photographers have often have the ability to do both at the same time. Um, it's like, it's like riding a bike, you know, everybody can ride a bike, but you still have professional mountain bikers and road racers that are significantly better than everybody else. And they're the ones that need the $5,000 bikes. But, you know, for the average Joe to even somebody a little bit better than the average Joe, you don't need to spend more than a thousand dollars on a bike. Uh, mm -hmm. it's just not going to matter. You're still going to have fun and enjoy yourself. If you don't mind me pivoting a little bit here, one thing I do with with pretty much all uh, all guests I have on the podcast is I kind of go through comments on some of their photos. And with you, obviously, photographing political 
um, images, there's going to be some some interesting stuff to find within the comment section of your of your images. This is a bit of a strange question, but again, it's coming completely from an outsider. Given you know you take some absolutely phenomenal images in the sense of just from a photography point of view, not necessarily contextually. Do, do you need to have an opinion one way or the other? But they are just phenomenal images in the sense of what you've done photographically. Do you ever get a bit sad or a bit downtrodden by the fact that people focus solely on the people that are within the images that you're taking and don't seem to be as focused on the photography? No, because I mean, I, I take pictures for the people. And if I wanted somebody to be really kind of uh, comment or enjoy a picture just for its aesthetic appeal, then and that's when I do like my landscape work or my travel photography or things like that. But when it comes to journalism, I mean, I take the picture because of the person or what is happening in the picture mm-hmm. and the visual aspect of it or the style that is kind of what I developed to set myself apart from others. Unfortunately, you know, sometimes people just may not like my style, but that's the thing about, you know, art and photography is doesn't have to appeal to everybody. And I often will get comments on some of my pictures that say, you know, uh, hate, hate the subject, love this picture. Right. Which does feel kind of good because, because then I have, I've taken a photograph that had that somebody enjoys and likes, even if the subject pattern matter or person is something that they vehemently disagree with. Obviously, photographing Iraq, the level of intimidation in the sense of of what's going on around you while you're photographing it. And obviously, like you've mentioned, you have a very good sense of the history that's kind of unfolding in front of you. And then to go and photograph people of such influence at such a uh, tumultuous time in you know, pretty much the world's capital at this point. I feel like Washington for the last few years has definitely been the sort of capital of everything that's going on in the world. Even in England, we don't seem to know what's going on in our own country, but we always know what's going on in America. (laughs) Is um, That's probably, uh, that probably sums up the state of England in a lot of ways, but does intimidation or does that kind of uh, volatile sort of nature of what you're photographing actually help you focus in more on the narrative? Is it something that you thrive under? I mean, I think, so in the case of Trump, he's a very decisive figure. And that is also pretty apparent in his body language, the way he conducts himself, the way he speaks and gestures and dresses. And so that does, you know, obviously affect the pictures I take and those kind of things. But also when I go into an event or like at the White House, uh, I don't have often I don't have a ton of time to think about it. All I have the time to do is think about taking a picture. Mm -hmm. Uh, I will often not even be, I will listen to what is being said, but I won't really like process it. I'll listen to the point where I like, okay, it sounds like he's maybe they're maybe getting to the end of their speech or something like that, but I won't really be processing what they are saying because I am trying concentrating to get a good picture. And then afterwards, sometimes I will think about it or be like, oh, yeah, they did say that. Mm -hmm. Or or like, I mean, for when we get sent into the Oval Office for, you know, those quick, we call them sprays, literally sometimes we will have 15 seconds to take pictures. 15 seconds. There will be a group of 
journalists, uh, photographers, and TV that is called the press pool. And we'll stand outside the Oval Office and they will rush us in and say, okay, pool, go. And we'll go in. We know where to go, kneel down, start taking our pictures. And when they say, all right, pool, that's it. Time to go. You can't argue with them. <laughs> you have to leave. Yeah. Uh, and, and you will hear people, you know, doing the whole shooting behind their back, you know, cause you never know what you're going to get. You might get somebody whispering to somebody else, but you're, you're, you're shooting. So maybe you'll get yourself another five second, but you don't really get to think about it often. Well, I guess the flip side of that then would be when you're doing stuff away from photojournalism, when you're doing your, your own personal photography or you're doing personal projects, do you like to add restrictions or increase sort of the, um, the difficulty of what it is that you're doing to more closely emulate what you're used to with photography? Or do you actually like that to be really open and free as opposed to what you're doing for a job? A little of both. Um, yeah, a little of all of that. Like, I don't necessarily go out and say, okay, I'm going to shoot this project only with a 50 millimeter. And I often don't like approach a personal project with strict rules. I will kind of have a general sense of what I want to do in the project because I will, because obviously I've decided to do that project for a reason. Um, but I will often just, just go and spend a couple of days and just go shoot. Um, like the, the ocean city project I did on the resort town. That one, I did not plan on shooting it in the very, very kind of still life, fine art style that I shot it in, or that the final body of work looks like. But it just, after a couple of days, those images started popping out at me from the, the, all the pictures I was taking. And then, and then after another couple of days, I was like, okay. Now I know that this is the visual style. This is what, this is kind of how the subject is speaking to me at that moment to be represented. Can I, can I go out and get more pictures that have a very similar feeling or that can also fit in this body of work? There are definitely benefits to putting restrictions on yourself to challenge yourself. I don't necessarily do that as a, project, but I will have teaching moments for myself where I will try and teach myself how to learn. I, I, I will never claim to be a master of photography because I feel like there's always something new to learn, a new technique to learn a new piece of gear to try out or a different way to look at something. And I'm always going to be developing. I mean, I look back, you look back at stuff I took 10 years ago and you look at stuff I'm taking today and yeah, there's definitely some elements of them that are very similar. They look like my, my photographs, but they're very different at the same time. Um, Again, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It's been absolutely fascinating. I'll try and draw this to a close so that you can enjoy your, the rest of your day, but there's a couple questions left if that's okay with you. One I would love to ask you is just about fatigue. Obviously you've had a crazy couple of decades or a, or a decade, I guess, or, you know, however you want to define it of dealing with just crazy adversity and photographing huge, huge events that are 
historically so important and there's obviously going to be some kind of mental wear. Do you get fatigued and do you almost want to take a break from photography in that sense for a bit at any point? Absolutely. I absolutely do get fatigued. Like I mentioned before, we're, I, I consider myself a very empathetic person and uh, a lot of journalists, photojournalists that I know are very empathetic and it really hurts when people call us vultures. Um, like we're preying on those who are feeling pain just for our own benefit to profit. And we're not, we're, we're, we're there because we care and we feel those emotions as well. I mean, we're at the things when they're happening, they happen in front of our eyes. Of course they're going to affect us. I mean, in Charlottesville after the car drove into the crowd. I wasn't, I was around the corner when that happened, uh, maybe a block away. That was the one time that I was thankful that that was kind of good that the, the computer system that my agency was using at the time was very slow because otherwise I would, I would have been right there. But I remember taking the pictures of the scene and then going back to my car and crying. It, it affects us. And then I do get burned out. Right. I do, I do get tired of doing politics or doing protests or thinking what's the use of it all. You know, there've been times where I've considered, you know, giving up photography as a profession. So I didn't lose my love of photography because it's something happens when you turn a love into a career. <laughs> it's something happens to it. Right. Um, but I do try and force myself to do certain things or personal projects that kind of rekindle things that kind of recharge me. Um, for, that'll often be like uh, landscapes or travel um, or cl rock climbing it's slowing down a little bit. Yeah, I absolutely do that. I, burnout is real. And there's kind of the, the winter depression for the photo industry as a whole, you know, cause nobody really wants pictures done in the winter. Everybody's holed up in their homes and <laughs> it's dark and dreary and gray. And, you know, I, everybody's like, gets depressed. It's like, is this, am I going to get more work? And that happens in journalism here in Washington. August tends to be extremely slow. Like I've only had three assignments this month because all the wow. lawmakers are out of town. And when all the lawmakers go out of town, then all of the lobbyists go out of town. And then put you put on top of that, the pandemic, that nothing is happening. There's just... they agencies and publications barely have enough to cover for their own staff. So yeah, it's, it's not easy. It's all, not all sunshine and rainbows. I get burned out. I get stressed out on whether or not I'm going to make enough money. Uh, I get stressed out on whether or not I'm going to come home in one piece. And right. Yeah. You got to take mental health is important. Mental health is very important. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. 
I mean, one thing I would say is that obviously given the difficulty of all of the things that you've done professionally to also do rock climbing as someone that's A, completely talentless and B, terrified of heights, I can't imagine how on earth that's your way of relaxing. <laughs> so uh, my hat's off to you there. I, I don't know. It's something about something about it. Like, I mean, only recently in the past year and a half have I really started doing kind of the really kind of intense things. Um, I'm still working on photographing a friend of mine who's a professional climber for a worldwide clothing brand. Um, he's working on this big wall that's six, the cliff itself is 600 feet tall, but Jesus it's, Christ. it's outside of Moab the in the desert. And it's at the top of a mesa and the hill to get up just to the bottom of the cliff is 1500 feet of elevation gain in half a mile. And so like, wow, we're, we're working on this thing and man, yet, you know, there's, it's, it's a different kind of rush because there, there are moments where I'm hanging on a single rope and I've had to kind of like close. I've looked in front of me and been like this one piece of rope that is three quarters of an inch wide is connected to this rock right here. And that's literally keeping me alive right now. That's freaking me out. I need to focus a little bit, <laughs> but then again, I'll start taking pictures and I'll forget about it. And you suddenly see me like hanging off the side, going perpendicular to the, uh, to the rock and, uh, reaching out with my arm and swinging around or pushing off the wall to jump off the wall to get the pictures. Cause I kind of got to, goes out of my mind once I start taking pictures. Um, but then you get home, you get down and it's a rush. You get someone like me that's scared of a stepladder and now I just feel completely pathetic. Well, see, now, now you can fly a drone. Ah, uh, yes. That's the trick. Yeah. Okay, so our last question again, I can't thank you enough for doing this. Given your obviously incredible experiences over the last uh, few years, I don't understand how the ownership with your images works, but is it something where you would be in a position to one day put together a book of work that you've done? Yeah. So when you are working for a news outlet on a day rate, it's work for hire. So they own the work. Um, and it varies a little bit from different publications to publication, outlet to outlet. Uh, like when I shoot for the New York times, um, they get the rights to all the pictures to use themselves. They have a service where they will then kind of sell them on, a uh, like a little bit of a wire service type thing. And we have a 50, 50 split of the proceeds of that. Um, but you don't make a ton of money from that. Uh, but they have a special clause in there that as a photographer, after a certain period of time, you can then sell the pictures in other ways, like sell prints or things like that. Um, but also a lot right. most most outlets do understand that you can use or give you permission to use the pictures for your own promotion. So that's obviously for your own social media, for your own website and portfolio and things like that. And I personally would reach out to an outlet if I was going to put put together a book later on down the road to just clear it up. But I don't think anybody would mind if I put together a, you know, limited print run book that I sold on my website for, 
uh, than maybe 50 copies or something like that. Right. But yeah. So do you think it's something you could do quite easily? You pick images from, from all of these different things that you photographed? Well, I mean, that depends on how many I have to narrow it down to. <laughs> sure. If I got a thousand pictures, I can get you a thousand <laughs> pictures that I like. <laughs> but if I have to get that down to 50, mm, that's going to get a little tough. Uh, I mean, often though, you, there is almost always over time, certain pictures will just stand out of a body of a work on their own. And if you're paying attention to that, you know, which pictures they are, you know, which pictures that, um, have legs and stand the test of the time. Actually, one thing I sometimes I, I do, uh, that is kind of interesting to pay attention to is I have, I get my business cards printed through Moo, moo.com and they have a, the ability to print a different picture on each business card. And I think it's up to 50 pictures. Right. So you can order, you know, however many business cards and have that series of 50 pictures. And I will often, you know, refill a series, the, the set in my wallet. And then after a few weeks or a month or so, I'll look and see like, oh, which, which pictures do I have a lot of extra on? Cause I will hand, <laughs> hand people the stack and say, pick your favorite. Um, right. And then I'll kind of end up with a, some pictures that don't get picked very often. So those kind of get pushed off to the side. Um, it's kind of like a democratic vote. Yeah. Yeah. But also everybody's got to remember though, that in the end, your body of work represents nobody else, but you. So if somebody, Mm -hmm. if you really, really feel strongly about a picture that it represents your work or what you want, it says what you want your work to say, put it in there. The the sole purpose of the podcast, um, when I started, it was to, uh, force other people to look at things that I liked and force other people to (laughs) enjoy work that I like. That's basically, it's just my way of forcing what I enjoy down other people's throats. Essentially. I want as many people as possible to be able to find your work, to see some amazing photojournalism, to see the images of everything that's going on out in um, Washington at the moment, your images from Iraq and so on. Where's the best places people can go so they can see your work? So the uh, most tight edited body of my work would be my website. And it's just samuelcorum.com, C-O-R-U-M. Uh, but then also on social media, um, I update my Instagram pretty often. Uh, and obviously there's a lot more wide range of images there. And that is uh, the Quorum, T-H-E-C-O-R-U-M. And then on Twitter, I'm Quorum Photo. That's amazing. Thank you so much. Again, I can't tell you how much I thank you for the time and the insight. I don't think you hear this enough as you probably should. It probably feels a bit weird coming from a foreigner, but thank you so much for your service as well. Just thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you, Chris. I really appreciate it. And it's been a pleasure talking with you.